Hello and welcome to Policy Voices by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Each week from Brussels, we bring you powerful conversations with policy voices from around the world. Policy Voices talking policy choices. One key thing that the war helped me understand, and especially after the war, is that civilians again carry the, the brunt of the conflict during the conflict and in the years to come. The consequences of conflict are far-reaching. It affects uh, what is youth doing, what is, where are we as a, as a, as a country, where are we as, as a region, lost opportunities, lost years that could have been used to a completely different, different vision. That was Amiro Meragic, the director of the Peace and Security Cluster of UNOPS, the operating arm of the United Nations. Amir was speaking about his home country of Bosnia and Herzegovina, but his words apply all too well to Gaza, Ukraine, and so many other regions of the world devastated by war. Amir is no stranger to conflict, having spent time in Bosnia during the war and in Afghanistan, working at the Mine Action Program. As the director of the Peace and Security Cluster, Amir oversees projects in the world's theaters of war, Afghanistan, Gaza and Ukraine, just to name a few. He spoke to Darmendra Kanani, chief spokesperson at Friends of Europe, the day after news broke that more than 100 United Nations employees were killed since the war in Gaza began. This was back in November, but Amir and Darmendra's conversation is still unfortunately up to date. I'm Katerina Villanova, host of Policy Voices, Friends of Europe's weekly podcast, and this week I bring you an interview with Amiro Meradzic, the man tasked with leading the team responsible for clearing the world of landmines. Stay with us. But firstly, a warm welcome to you, uh, Amir. You are the director of Peace Security Cluster at UNOPS. What does that mean? Damenda, first of all, thank you so much uh, for hosting me today. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about uh, quite an exciting, uh, uh, interesting and important work we do. In short, UNOPS is the operating arm uh, of, uh, of the United Nations. We focus on operations, um, but also for us to be a good implementing partner, we need to understand, we need to engage at the policy level, at the strategy level. Back to your question, peace security cluster, what is it? Uh, a lot falls under peace security. Uh, and UNOPS really has a breadth of experience amongst uh, many of our offices, uh, activities such as support to mediation efforts, support to um, um, rule of law institutions, police, um, uh, strengthening justice systems across the world, whether that goes through infrastructure or project management services, that's essentially the breadth of our experience in peace security. Uh, my team in particular focuses on explosive threat management and within that uh, I would uh, use the, the term that uh, your listeners might be more familiar with which is mine action. Removal of uh, uh, explosive ordnance, removal of landmines, unexploded ordnance uh, and anything that can actually prevent civilians going about their lives, prevent uh, sustainable development and of course prevent uh, peace, peace building, peace operations effort. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, like landmines and demining was obviously something that was close to Princess Diana's heart. I'm wondering, if, you know, that's someone who actually brought the agenda uh, quite high up globally. But we can refer to that later. You've been in Afghanistan, and 
um, you know, the demining program or the what you're describing is dealing with explosives and removing them and making them, uh, you know, um, inoperable uh, so that people are able to walk safely, live their lives safely. Um, can you say in terms of um, kind of thinking about what that means, has this program um, led to stabilization in terms of what's happened in, um, in Afghanistan? Are we like full circle back? the Taliban in place and that all that works wasted? Well, thanks. A great question. And Afghanistan is really, really um, a program country. Uh, my experience there has shaped uh, my approach to life, both professionally and, and personally. I've, I've had a, a privilege, really, to, to spend six years in Afghanistan. Uh, three of those I worked uh, with UNHCR, supporting return of refugees. And then three of those three uh, last years in Afghanistan, uh, uh, the entire period was 2003-2009. Uh, I was working uh, as part of the Man Action Program. And the program, uh, that's the, the oldest, the most uh, well kind of known uh, program, one of the most uh, known programs in the world. Man Action Program in Afghanistan started really in the late 80s. That's how, uh, how long ago the efforts to get rid of um, landmines and unexploded ordnance started, uh, you know, huge role played by both international and national organizations, United Nations as well. And there's really, that, that program has gone through cycles, through life cycles, depending on the uh, political situation in the country, depending who was ruling the country, depending on, you know, many, many geopolitical um, uh, elements that influence anything happening in that country. But interestingly, mine action has been seen by all warring parties is a good thing, as, a, as, as, a, as something that really helps civilians. And just as an example, since you mentioned uh, uh, Taliban, I believe it was 1994 where the Taliban leadership issued a decree uh, that actually announced war against landmines. And that just goes to tell you how uh, on, on all sides people recognize that mine actually is something non-political, humanitarian in nature and really focuses on uh, helping civilians. So those are just some, some elements that, that really uh, highlight, uh, uh, A, the, the, the scope of the problem. Contamination uh, is massive through wars, protracted uh, conflicts. Uh, you know, you have, if you look at the history of Afghanistan, it's, it's unfortunately rich with conflict. So each and every of these conflicts resulted in new contamination on top of the old contamination. So um, in, in terms of the stabilization, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about nature of mine action as an activity that really stretches and, and really exists within that nexus of humanitarian development and, and peace operations. So life-saving uh, as, as part and parcel of mine action is it's very easy to understand. You're helping returnees coming back home and Afghanistan has seen uh, uh, you know, uh, refugees, uh, people crossing the border both ways. So when, they, when people return back to their communities, they're faced with an with a immense amount of explosive hazards. You know, children not understanding whether something is a toy or a piece of metal, picking it up and actually uh, uh, being, being killed or, or injured. So humanitarian nature is, is undisputed and unrecognized by everybody. Um, development nature, enabling development, uh, is, is actually a massive part of, uh, and value of mine action. Uh, allowing children to go to school, uh, returning 
previously contaminated land back to uh, their owners for agricultural purposes, uh, construction, etc., etc. So what you're saying is, if I, it's not just a safety issue. That is the most important driver to be able to achieve economic development or stability to enable human, you know, humanitarian aid to flow into places. So it's it. You say a little bit about. Give us an example of how that works. You talked about you know the child not knowing is a toy or not, but in 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 a place like Afghanistan or a, a village somewhere, what's the impact of your work on not just the safety element but the wider dimension of economic development or stabilization? Yeah, absolutely. We actually did a very interesting case study, looking at. Uh, um, what were the initial assumptions behind us prioritizing piece of land that was 10 years ago and what has actually happened? And that's an amazing opportunity. Uh, we talk about monitoring and evaluation or MEAL, the new acronym that actually uh, also includes learning and accountability. Um, and we were actually able through a um, collaboration with London School of Economics, uh, MIT, ALSIS, uh, United Nations, of course, to look at how clearance that uh, our teams did 10 years ago contributed to the development of the community, but also it influenced on the GDP. So we are actually able to look at the impact and quantify it. And we are actually trying to build this into a model that could be used for other, for other countries. But enabling development um, is, is uh, and mine action is an enabler, is a cross-cutting issue that actually opens the door for other players to come in. You know, we are not silver bullet for, for development, but essentially by clearing land, we are enabling other actors to come in and do their work, whether that's government, whether that's United Nations, whether that's uh, uh, community-based organizations. And then the, the last element that very often gets a little bit, uh, or not, and not forgotten, but not emphasized enough, is uh, peace building or trust building, stabilization, if, if you will, in, in, in some of the discourses. Um, we've had flagship programs of community-based demandings in Afghanistan where really localization, the new, uh, you know, sure. that, that, that is being used uh, recently, but in Afghanistan it's been part and parcel of, of the program. Mm -hmm. So community-based demanding where communities, mm -hmm. uh, through deployment of core professional staff, training and engagement of the communities, actually communities are able to clear, uh, uh, clear the, the, the land and, and their own villages them, themselves. So that, that's something uh, that is life-saving for sure, mm -hmm. but it's also employment, it's youth employment. It's actually giving people a chance uh, to be gainfully employed and proudly so, to help their communities move forward. And that element of uh, trust building, yes. uh, very often those communities could, you know, are, are mixed, they're, they're, they have experienced conflict one way or another. So that element, again, uh, of mine action as a, as a trust building, peace building, is, is something we've seen in Afghanistan and other, and other places. How do communities react to you? You're a UN, they will see as a UN peacekeeping force. Let's put it this way. Why would anyone understand you as being anything other than that at a local level? Um, what do you do? What's, what's the kind of entry points for you to say, because people will say, well, I'm just not going to talk to this, but they're just doing something over there. Uh, as opposed to building it. How do you start building that relationship? Well, we cover around 20 countries globally. Each and every country is a different context. So there's support to peacekeeping operations in the likes of Mali, Somalia, South Sudan, etc. In Afghanistan, really, uh, in support of UN Mine Action Service, we are essentially operating in a humanitarian space. So all the issues of neutrality, all the issues of working through local partners uh, are, again, part and parcel and uh, prioritized within our response. So we are not coming in 
as a, a you know external force. We are working through fantastic uh, colleagues, uh, uh, NGOs, the likes of uh, Halo Trust, uh, DDG, ATC, Omar, DAFA, MCPA, etc. They, uh, if not entirely, then vast majority of their of their staff are locals, and that program has existed, as we said, since since early 90s. So, uh, Afghan solution to Afghan problems. There's a huge amount of expertise in Afghanistan uh, that exists within the Afghan population. So we are absolutely, uh, you know, making sure that that is, that is uh, so. If I, if I may, I do want to add, um, you know, Afghanistan, as I said, has gone through cycles of uh, uh, ability to operate, reduce space. And now with the um, uh, Taliban takeover, um, uh, it, it, it's a little bit paradoxical. Of course, there's political sensitivities around it, but I want to emphasize humanitarian space, neutrality of, of the UN's interventions there. Paradoxical in a way that now we have access to areas in Afghanistan that two years ago we, we wouldn't because right. of insecurity. Now with the, uh, with the de facto government uh, uh, in uh, de facto authorities in, in, in place, we are able to access those areas, but the funding from the, uh, from the donors has gone down significantly. So it's... Uh, you know, in the heyday of Afghanistan program, we used to have 15,000 deminers, not only working for the UN. 15,000 deminers, more than 500 teams spread across the country. Now, when we have access, when we have a, a, a ability to go and focus on helping civilians, that workforce has gone down to uh, one-fifth uh, of, of, of what it used to be. So really, uh, um, there are efforts, of course, by, uh, by the mission there, by uh, Mine Action Service, by uh, other partners, UNICEF, UNHCR, ourselves, UNDP, to really try to uh, expand and advocate precisely humanitarian nature uh, and trust-building nature of, uh, of our interventions. Let's move to something that's on everyone's minds at the moment. It's, an, it's a theatre of war now, um, one we didn't expect, especially on the back of... Uh, Ukraine. Um, I'm talking about Gaza. Um, it's dividing people, communities, but at the end of the day, what we're talking about is human rights, humanitarian aid, and how do you ensure uh, the safety of people and humans? Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing in Gaza. Uh, our work in Gaza is, is part of the long-standing partnership with the United Nations Mine Action Service. Uh, we've been present, our teams have been present in Gaza for, for years, unfortunately due to the cyclical nature of the conflict. And uh, again, we are seeing that cycle of uh, conflict and violence uh, uh, happening right now at the scale that uh, is, it's really hard to compare it to anything before. Uh, our focus again are civilians, uh, um, civilian casualties uh, uh, on, on, on all sides, of course, and Secretary General has made clear statements around what UN, where UN stands with regards to the conflict. Uh, but at the moment, our footprint is relatively small mm -hmm. in Gaza because just before, you know, a few, few weeks ago, the conflict was at the level where, you know, our services were not so much needed. Now we know, again, unfortunately, uh, that uh, the intensity of fighting, uh, the amount of uh, ordnance uh, fired uh, would mean that uh, uh, the services of our teams would be, would be essential to protect the civilians as and when conditions for, for that uh, uh, are there. We have a, a relatively small team. It's part of the Palestine program. We have uh, 10 people currently in Gaza. Nine of them are uh, our local colleagues who are doing 
amazing, amazing jobs, still trying to find meaningful ways to deliver risk education. How do you do, I mean, yesterday we heard that nearly um, over 200, just under 200 UN staff have been, have been killed um, in a way that uh, we've not heard those numbers before. It was palpably stated yesterday by the director there. And I mean, uh, how, are you, how are you able to maintain that kind of uh, level of activity and safety of local people, which is a, the most difficult question to answer I know because you don't know. It's, it's near impossible precisely because uh, conflict is ongoing, so it's very difficult to move around and actually deliver any type of service. But I know particularly our local colleagues um, are trying to uh, use whatever means they have at least to deliver uh, risk education uh, materials. We have we prepositioned printed materials. When electricity and connectivity is there, we can use text messages, we can use radio, we can use other means of, of just spreading the message as best as we can and really kudos goes to our team there. Uh, one uh, international colleague we have there is an uh, is a, a explosive ordnance uh, disposal expert. He's part of a UN mission uh, there to make sure that uh, when the movement happens of the interagency mission, such as the one to Al-Shifa Hospital, that actually that mission itself is safe if it comes across unexploded ordnance. He's also doing targeted missions to shelters, to schools, to assess the risk and really within a very, very limited and major space, do the best we can. Um, this morning and yesterday we are seeing hopefully some positive signals uh, around the ceasefire. We all hope and watch that space, uh, 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 you know, counting that there will be more, uh, there will be cessation of hostilities, uh, cessation of fighting, so we could then actually do what we do uh, really good, make sure that uh, people are aware of the risks, uh, do the clearance, uh, clear some of those hazardous areas and really protect the civilians. Are you, as an agency, able to keep in touch on a very regular basis with the people that are on the ground in Gaza? Are they able to give you daily reports as to what's happening? Because in a way, you become a, a fact-checker. And I'm not sure, I, I know you. that's not your role and you're never going to be politi political about it, but we did hear, um, you know, the UN Secretary General uh, Guterres making one of the most powerful statements early on uh, and unfortunately had a backlash to it. But in a way, people locally based do provide that sense of, I suppose, objective view of what they're seeing. Is, is that something that you're able to share with people? Well, we, have a, we try to have a daily check with our um, colleagues. Um, the main um, purpose behind it is really health and safety. Just check in, is everybody safe? As you, you mentioned yourself, it's a huge, uh, um, significant number of UN personnel who lost their lives. Um, our colleagues, uh, as of this morning, are, are um, all safe uh, in the locations uh, in, in southern part of Gaza. Um, how they operate and, and the challenges uh, that they face every day in terms of worrying about themselves, worrying about their families and still trying to do the work is, is just tes testimony of, 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 the, of, their, of their commitment. Uh, so we do uh, try to have regular check-ins, but uh, electricity connectivity is, is poor. So there are periods of blackouts where we actually cannot uh, talk, we cannot actually exchange emails or messages. So it's, it's difficult. Because I've, I've interviewed many of your colleagues in different agencies, but also within UNOPS as well. 
that you have a policy of trying to employ local people, do you not, for your kind of, some, I mean, for, for, as a part of the UN personnel working locally? That's an active choice you make as an agent? Essentially, context matter, and people from uh, their own context, their own countries, know uh, elements about that context that has to be part and parcel of the design and response. We talk about Afghanistan, the importance of local colleagues who uh, uh, have a great breadth of knowledge and experience uh, and ability to, to do what they do in, in their context. The same uh, refers to Gaza, the same refers to all of the countries we work in, between Somalia, uh, Mali, uh, Libya, Colombia. Uh, we have fantastic local colleagues who are more than capable to actually carry the core of our workforce. Let's turn to Ukraine, another theatre of war, you know, another site of war. Uh, again, you know, it'll be now over two, coming up to two years or more and um, something we never imagined. Um, uh, but what's, what, what's the focus of your work there? I mean, were you there before? Or where, at what point did you get in there? And what are you doing now? I think our, our listeners will be interested in understanding the role that UNOPS is playing there. Thank you, Ukraine. Uh, from, from the point of view of uh, uh, landmines, uh, unexplored northern contamination is one of the most contaminated countries. We are talking about around 175,000 uh, square kilometers. And just to put it in perspective, that's around 10 times the size of um, Belgium. So though that's the, the, the area that is suspected to be uh, um, affected by hazard, hazard, hazardous objects, uh, explosive hazards. Uh, in terms of UNOPS's presence in Ukraine, it preceded uh, recent conflict. Uh, uh, UNOPS has been present there um, since 2012 had a, a number of activities in support of uh, uh, strengthening state institutions, uh, justice, uh, police, etc. But in terms of the mine action element of that program, that pillar of our work in Ukraine uh, has been in place since last year, since September. We see our role, um, you know, all the players are of course important, especially if we understand that the, the scope of the problem. But we see our role particularly important at this stage in supporting state institutions, operationally helping them expand their capacities. And I'm talking about uh, state emergency services, state transportation services, specialized state transportation services, and national police. So we are uh, discussing with our stakeholders, with donors, the best ways to train, equip, mentor, provide support to what is essentially Ukrainian civilian capacity to respond to the problem. Uh, UNOPS, you'd be aware, is, a, uh, uh, is lead agency for uh, infrastructure, uh, reconstruction Indeed. elements. And you can imagine that in places like Mykolaiv, Chernihiv, uh, many other oblasts, you would need to think about both reconstruction, rebuilding, but also you could see how mine action component as part of these programs could add significant value. And that's exactly what we're doing. We have, we have a technical advisor attached to UNOPS's reconstruction project in, uh, in Mykolaiv. It's, it's a, such a difficult job in terms of when you think about demining and then reconstruction simultaneously in a place where you don't know where the next bomb is going to land. And it's, it's a constantly shifting sand or a, t a territory. How, how, how do you manage that? Well, it, it is, but we've done that uh, so many right. times. Okay. So we're very, uh, you know, it, it is... Risky activity, but uh, we've dealt with it for so long and we are so much plugged into international mine action standards, creation, uh, learning as, as part of the learning for the entire sector. So 
uh, all of those th things that need to be done are very, uh, uh, we know what we're doing, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And think about the nature of the conflict over the recent years. Uh, we were involved uh, in Iraq, uh, in Syria, where the nature of the conflict, it's, it, it happens in urban settings. You mm. can imagine contamination that happens uh, Gaza as well, that happens as part of uh, uh, heavy bombardment, uh, destruction of the buildings where you need to do rubble removal and uh, uh, explosive threat, risk management, uh, removal. Uh, so we know exactly what we're doing. As we kind of wrap up this conversation, I want to turn to you, Fomi, in terms of you uh, grew up in Bosnia. So you, um, I suppose, the sense of conflict um, how multiple players in the world engage with the territory, what that does to a sense of community identity and continues to have, I mean, Bosnia has this place, this special place for good or for bad, as a, um, a symbol or a reminder of how things were done badly or well. Now, um, depending where you sit, could you share with us a little bit about how defining um, it was for you personally um, in growing up in that situation, how that's kind of affected your choices professionally and the fact that you're working in this, in this, in this territory, if you don't mind sharing. No, not at all. And, and thank you. Yes, I, I come proudly come from Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, very, very happily go back to, to, to Bosnia. My parents are still there, a lot of friends. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's, it's the country, Bosnia and the entire Western Balkans. It's, it's a uh, who I am, uh, what shaped me again, uh, personally and professionally. Uh, I have not worked in the mine action sector in Bosnia. I do pay attention uh, to it, of course. Um, Bosnia is still one of the most contaminated countries uh, in the world. It has gone through its own, uh, uh, you know, life cycles, the program, the mine action program there. Uh, but uh, I can only say that it's uh, nationally led by very, very competent uh, teams, uh, um, very much uh, Bosnian uh, local, local teams that uh, make sure that whatever contamination left is, is addressed in the best possible way. Of course, the funding is still a, is still a, a, a challenge uh, and that, that, that's an ongoing process that I know my colleagues and my countrymen and women are, are, are dealing with. Um, I did uh, spend time in Bosnia during the war. Um, uh, it was an uh, you know, experience that unfortunately shaped a lot of my generation uh, and different generations, not only mine, but uh, and unfortunately even more so, still shaped some of the thinking of the generations that are coming that actually did not live during the war, but those consequences of the war and um, I would say political and visionary stalemate that exists in, unfortunately, in my country and wider region is not helping new generations move on. Uh, one thing, uh, one key thing that uh, um, the war helped me understand, and especially after the war, is that civilians again carry the, the brunt of the conflict during the conflict and in years to come. The consequences of conflict are far reaching. You know, conflict in Bosnia finished in 1995. You could still now you go to. You can hear the echo and, and, and you can hear the echo again through talking to some people who have uh, not experienced war, but they still talk about it in, in, in a way that indicates that there's a trauma that is carried through the generations. Uh, I would say that it, it, it saddens me. It's, it's more than disappointing because, uh, uh, you know, it, it affects 
it affects uh, what is youth doing, what is, where are we as a, as a, as a country, where are we as, as a region, lost opportunities, lost years that could have been used to a completely different, different vision. Again, as I said, I want to end on, on, a, on a negative. I uh, love my country. I love the entire uh, area of Western Balkans, former Yugoslavia. I happily go and visit all of the countries and, and connect with people. We also have the duty, frankly, to try to establish as many connections as, as possible. And I hope, I'm, I'm always um, encouraged when, when, when you new, meet new people from all corners of former Yugoslavia, I'm always encouraged that there is a, there is a hope that we could find the strength, resolve, to move towards a better vision for the entire region. It's a tough thing to realise that your job moves from one conflict to the other, but it's great that you have this sense of resilience and optimism. It's very good to know that. Thank you very much, Amir, and we wish you well into the future. Thank, Thank you, you for so. having me. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for staying on that side to hear Darmendra Kanani's interview with Amiro Meragic, the director of the Peace and Security Cluster of UNOPS. If you have comments or questions about today's episode, search for Friends of Europe on X, LinkedIn or Instagram and leave us a comment. Don't forget to subscribe to Policy Voices wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. I'm Katerina Villanova and I will be with you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>